Welcome to the If We Knew Then podcast. I'm Stephen Sox. And I'm Lori Sox. Today we welcome back early interventionist and child development specialist, Caroline Benz Fernandez. Caroline was a great guest of the podcast who previously explained what early intervention was, what to expect, and how a child development specialist benefits children from birth to three years old. Today we'll be diving a little bit deeper into the aspects of early intervention, what tools parents can use at home, and how therapies for children with Down syndrome have changed over the years. Caroline, it's a pleasure to have you back. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. When we first met you, you were one of the therapies we were receiving from Regional Center, along with OT and PT and speech. And at the time, I didn't really understand what early intervention or you as an early interventionist teacher, how that was all going to work out and what your part was. Because PT, physical therapy, I know that as an adult, OT, I can understand that. Um, speech, I obviously understand what that is. But maybe you can talk about how early intervention complements the other services that children may receive. Yeah, this is how I explain to families. Think of I'm the child development therapist, and I sort of monitor all those areas, the cognitive, the gross motor, the fine motor, the social motor. So I'm monitoring all those areas. But if I feel that the child needs a specialized service, then I would refer out, you know, and then that's where the PT comes in, the OT. But I sort of, I'm sort of just think of like a teacher who's kind of has to go through all the areas of development and kind of work with the family. I mean, I think the child development is kind of the glue that kind of hopefully keeps everybody on the same track and together. I always think a child development person should be, you know, collaborating with all the other therapists, the PT, the OT, and the speech, so that we're all working together. I don't want to say like a home teacher, but you know, because to me, it's it's more also like coaching because I'm also teaching the parents as well. Well, you, you mentioned being the coach. You are the coach to teach the parents. You're also kind of the quarterback, too, if you think of it, that just kind of understanding what the child needs and then trying to get that done. And it might even be outside of you. Right. And also advocate to help the parents learn to advocate for their child and helping them if something's not feeling right, empowering them to say, hey, this is your child. It's not feeling right. What can we do about it? And giving him them the tools to do that. Because once the child's three and they go off to the school district, they may need some of those tools because it's the school district, it's a lot bigger. So I think parents need those tools to kind of be able to stand up and advocate for their child and, and themselves. What kind of tools or advice would you give? Uh, because this is, you know, hopefully this will reach people who there are some people that aren't getting that early intervention. So if somebody doesn't have that, what what tools, what gems would you give those parents uh, and advice would you give to advocate for their child? Well, I always tell families to really go with their gut feeling. And if they're feeling something's not right, question it. You know, also 
always before signing anything, always just wait and think about it. You know, always advocate for time for yourself and for the child to figure out what's the best route and do a little research. I would reach out to people, try to get early intervention if you can. Uh, and know your rights, your laws, your your rights <laughs> as a as a parent of maybe a child with special needs, you know, kind of really looking into that as well. Over the last 30 years, do you have any favorite tools that you use to support a child and why are they your favorites? I do have specific things sort of at every age kind of level or every month level. So there's certain things and I always try to tell the families, well, f- number one, my Facebook, I, I, actually books in general. I think books in general, everybody should sort of have a mirror. A mirror is something simple and easy that I think that you could, I use and, you know, and everybody could use that at home. But there are certain to- toys and things that I, I do especially love, like, let's say for babies, like, I, I don't know if this, I'm answering the question, but nesting cups can go a long way and so though that's sort of in my in my bag always is like nesting cups blocks so things that they that chi- a child can use and then and then it could grow with them so it's not just a toy for this six month old but it could be a toy all the way up nesting cups could be a toy all the way up to three years old um you know so there are certain specific things that i definitely I don't think they have to have all the fancy light up toys out there. I think it's going back to the basic, simple things, you know, having a mirror blocks or nesting cups, books for sure. When you say Facebook, you're not talking about sign them up on Facebook. You have an actual book, right? That, that has a, yes. a book of faces. I have a couple of books with faces and all babies starting at babies all the way up to toddlers love to look at babies faces and their expressions. So in the beginning, it's just the baby looking at a baby smiling or uh, being sad or whatever, just all faces. So as, as the babies are at, when they're babies, they love looking at baby pictures as they grow older, they're going to really love to look at, Oh, why is he sad? Oh, he's happy. And then it could turn into, you know, having lots of discussions closer to two, you know, about, what makes you sad? What makes you happy? So, yep, that's a book with different facial expressions is one of them. You also mentioned a mirror. How can parents use a mirror to help in their child's development? I love mirror play. Mirror play, well, first of all, both of you could be in the mirror. You could be smiling. The baby is definitely going to be smiling. You could do exaggerated facial expressions around nine, ten, around eight or nine months. They should start imitating those facial expressions and doing things like that. You could be opening your mouth. And then for expressive language, it's beautiful. You could be doing ahs and oohs and it's really exaggerating, looking in the mirror and, you know, having the baby do that too. And then the baby then eventually, if he's by himself, look in the mirror, might start talking to himself in the mirror. Hey, there's another baby there. Ooh, bah, and start talking to themselves. So a mirror, I think, is always great. And many homes have mirrors in the house. So you could just use any mirror, basically, around your house. So I do, I I think that goes a long way too. Nesting cups were another toy or tool you had listed. What are nesting cups and how can parents use them? Yes. Okay. So nesting cups are just, you know, the small cups all the way going down to the big cups. Um, And I like those. I introduce those even 
maybe four or five months, I just sort of have the baby reach up and try to grab a cup. As they're working on their sitting, I work on nesting cups, pulling the nesting cups out, um, and then banging the nesting cups together um, is another developmental milestone. So bang, 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 those cups together. Um, and then it's a great fine motor skill. It's a great cognitive skill. Um, it's, you know, eventually stacking the cup. Stacking is huge developmental milestone. You go and expressive language up, 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 up. And then here's the turn taking now knocking those cups down. So that's that turn taking back and forth. Here we go. We're going to go up, up, up with the cups and then having the baby knock them down. There's that social emotional, that cognitive, that cause and effect. I think cups go a long way. And then even after that, they're going to have, the, there's colors. The cups have colors. You could introduce the colors. Then they're going to have to learn how to put them back. The, the, the big one can't go in the little one. Uh-oh, is that trial and error? Like, what happened? Let's try it again. So I just think it goes a long way. You could also store, eventually, you can do some sorting with them, putting if it's a red cup, putting the red blocks in the red cup and the blue blocks in the blue cup. So I just, I think cups go a long way, especially birth to three or, you know, yeah, birth to three, basically. And you had mentioned that with those cups, banging and banging is a milestone. What is, because as a parent, you might, you might be tempted to be a, stop that banging. <laughs> so, so what is, what is banging as a milestone? Well, first of all, holding two objects at the same time is great. And then being able to figure out, oh, if I put it together, it makes a noise. It's that cause and effect. So it's like, oh, bang, bang, bang. And then it makes a noise. So it's that cause and effect. Like the baby realizes I could put my hands together and make this noise. And then guess what comes after that? Clapping. So it's like it's sort of these little steps to teaching all these little things. Um, and then, you know, then, you know. Bang, bang, bang. So and then closer to a year, you know, babies usually still like to do the bang, bang, bang. We sort of, you know, find something else to do. Then we'll do, we'll redirect them a little bit. A lot of my families go, oh my gosh, they're still banging because <laughs> it's such a great thing that they can do. They, you know, they feel empowered that they can do this. So then we work on, well, let's work on stacking now up, 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 um, things like that. So yeah, so I know it's just, it's, it's that cause and effect. Um, it's, it's like banging on a musical toy, but they're able to now bang two cups together and make this brilliant noise. Um, it's just, it's, it's, a, it's, a learning, it's a learning curve or a learning uh, milestone. And, and to get a perspective on uh, the foundation that the early intervention creates, so you're starting with uh, the nesting cups and then the banging, and then that teaches the child cause and effect. How does that cause and effect show itself then in the child and then also that empowerment of of being able to create this noise the sound or music it's empowering the child to feel like they're able to to do this and it's a milestone and and, and he feels good and then eventually that will turn into oh well if i push this button over here it'll it'll be musical you know it, and then it'll lead up to shape sorting you know like putting a shape into something oh if I try this oh I can't do that it's these are all little steps leading up to you know puzzle play or you know um open the busy box or you know things like that you go from banging a cup to 
now you're you're teaching you're giving this you're planting the seed of empowerment you're planting the seed of I can in the face of so much you can't exactly and and I've always and I don't know if I don't know if you remember or I've always said a child's social emotional well-being their their feeling of empowerment and feeling good the key to learning and the key to success they cannot learn if they're not feeling that empowerment or that that or they're not feeling good i feel like socially emotionally they have to be able to be in a good place to then continue to learn so yes so i think that that empowerment and that and i'm so happy to hear that liam has that that he feels he feels good that he's just going to you know stand up there and read and continue learning that's that to me is so much more important than academics or what all these other things. It's really the f- child's know, learning the child's strengths, showing them their strengths, showing the family their, their strengths, and then them, them to then continue to keep learning and going forward. And, you know, these are really challenges for typical parents as well. Yeah, I mean, I... My main concern with my two boys when they were little is I wasn't concerned about the fancy academic schools. I wanted my child to feel secure and loved in, in, a, in an environment that they, they were wanting to learn, you know, and I just, I, I, I just feel that still stay that that's that giving them the, the confidence to be able to question or you know, and to feel like they can question is, I think, the key. is key to success. I, I, I really firmly believe that. Well, you know, my little sports brain has now defined you as the coach <laughs> and the quarterback and now the cheerleader, right? Those are all parts that do fit together well in your work. You know, that cheerleader, that rah-rah, that encouragement is very important. It can't be stressed enough. Um, to go back to kind of uh, some of the tools you use, we didn't discuss blocks, and that's a pretty simple thing that parents may have. Because you have to think, this podcast could also go out to people that aren't in this state. Maybe maybe your job isn't even offered to them. Uh, maybe they can get PT or OT, but the teaching part may not be there for them. Or they have you, and they just want to do more, which parents often want to want to just continue to, to do this on a daily basis if they only have you once or twice a week or something. How do you use blocks in your therapies and your sessions? Blocks are great. So as a baby, just having him being able to reach out and grab a block. There's all certain, certain types of grass. So just having him reach out and grabbing a block. Then eventually holding two blocks. And again, banging two blocks. And then pulling out blocks from containers you know, taking, taking these blocks out of the containers, because eventually what we're going to want him to do is put the blocks back into containers. So a closer to one is when they're really purposely releasing. So that purposeful release comes important. So then we're going to have the kids put the blocks back into the container. It makes a loud noise. It's fun. Because as a lot of year old parents know, when they're Sitting in the high chair, they discovered throwing the food off and watching it fall. That's releasing, but it's not purposeful. Not that we want, we don't want them to do that, obviously. So then teaching them to put the blocks in the container, which then will lead to, you know, putting the circle in the sorter or in the square, or it will lead to putting the, completing a puzzle, a shape puzzle. 
Um, and then also blocks even later on is building with them towers, building up towers, knocking them down, making bridges with blocks, you know, and then pushing a car under, working on expressive language under, putting it on, around. Um, those are all, I mean, blocks could go a long way. Even, you know, three, four, five-year-olds, they could build with blocks. Block play is very important, even preschoolers, um, you know, just the way they build with them and kind of having them figure out different, um, different, you know, buildings or designs or making cars and tracks. Pretend play is great. I mean, so I just, I think it, it, it really gives to the imagination, um, you know, the, the kids could create and imagine and with blocks, you know, building a house or building a garage or building a track or, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. And you had mentioned the purposeful release and, and then throwing the food is releasing, but without a purpose. Do, do well, yeah, <laughs> go, go ahead. You know what I'm, you know, my question is, is there, do we want to teach them that's not purposeful and don't throw the food? And if we do, do you have any advice on how to do that? Or is it just good for them to throw food to the ground? I would try to catch them before they do it and redirect them. We don't really want them to do that. Um, and then it's a habit to kind of hard, hard to break, but I would, you know, the goal is, is catch them before they do it and then put the food maybe in the bowl, maybe put a little bit of less food on the tray so they don't do that. Also watch out for when, you know, why are they uh, starting to throw it? Is it towards the end of the time? Is it too much food? You know, trying to see what happens right before they throw that food. Um, but the, 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 I love one and two year olds because it's redirect, redirect, redirect. And we also don't want, you know, if he did throw it, just sort of ignore it and move on because we don't, you know, they're not at the age, you know, three-year-olds maybe could be at the age where it's like, you know, understanding, you know, we don't do that right now. This is, you know, but one and two year olds are not quite there where they're not understanding. So we don't, we want to really point out just the positives and kind of ignore the, the behaviors that we don't want them to see. And as you were saying about um, throwing the food, then we have to unteach that lesson. Uh, One of the things that we see and we're challenged with now that Liam is in the school system and, you know, for so much of the year, he's around, other people who allow different behaviors. And then come summertime, come summertime, we have to undo a lot of Liam gets away with everything or, you know, just certain habits that just shouldn't have been learned. Do you have pointers or tips for parents on how to undo those bad behaviors? Well, I always tell families because they say, oh, it's because he's going to the daycare, he's learning this. I say, you know what, though? At home is when you try to either discuss the behavior, like that this is what we don't, we don't do that. We don't do this in our home. Or you try to just sort of, I mean, it depends how young the child is, ignore the behavior and then focus on just the positives on what he is doing at home. But, you know, if he's old enough to and understanding You could always just sort of, all kids pick up good and bad behaviors. I say that about everything. And, you know, we just want to focus on what the, you know, what the behavior is, you know, and, and just focus on what we want them to do basically is, and then kind of either discussing like, no, we don't do that at home. We don't, whatever it is, let's say he's throwing, he's throwing something. I'm not quite sure the remote, I don't know, whatever it is he's doing at home that he learned at school. 
and then we could, I would discuss it with them. Like, this is not what we're doing at home, but we do it, you know, we, I mean, we don't do this at home, basically. All kids are going to pick up good and bad, you know, they, they, they just do. And it's just sort of teaching them that that's not what we do in this home and talking with them and hopefully learning that they can't do quite do that. I guess the, the challenge we get is that in the, in the real world, a lot of times Liam gets away with pretty much what he wants to do because he can outwit like I I always say if you can get to the fourth time to telling him what to do if he doesn't want to do something then he knows you're you're serious but for the most part people will go do that and he'll say no and they'll say do that and he'll say no and then they'll say do that and he'll say no and they won't go and so then they'll either do it or let allow him to continue if it gets to three it sometimes it's just the second time they go okay like kids will go, Liam, you can't do that. And he'll do it. And they'll be like, okay, Liam. And so then Liam comes home or out into the real world. And he's like, ah, I could kind of do what I want. And that we have to try to, that's, that's something that we always, we try to undo. You know, you think of it as a perception in society of just kind of letting Liam do like if feeling for Liam that he has Down syndrome and sometimes letting him do what he really wants because you know it's making him happy, although it might not be the most productive thing. Maybe he doesn't want to do math right now. He'd rather look at his iPad. Who wouldn't? But Liam can sometimes get away with getting someone to allow that to happen. I think maybe you've seen it in the last 30 years, some changes in perceptions, societal perceptions to people with Down syndrome. That might be one that that isn't evolving as fast it isn't changing as quickly I feel like we always have to push Liam and he'll do it but he may be a bit stubborn and and I don't think it's it's something that is um stopped I think it's kind of allowed to happen and and that's why sometimes it's harder to get through that stubbornness with him yeah and it's harder for you guys Caroline we always love talking to you because you really have such wonderful information and insight Thank you. I mean, it, it's so funny. I, I still tell my parents this day, well, you know, parenting is still, or parenting, teaching myself, it's trial and error. <laughs> you know, we're just, we got to figure it out. Let's try this approach. It doesn't work. We're going to try another approach. But And then you say it with such a nice, light voice and a laugh that uh, is calming because that's not always how parents feel where this isn't working now. Let's try something else. Let's just try the next thing. It doesn't come always from a place of a, a, a lighter air. It's always feels like a little bit of a weight behind it. So it's nice to have you there for all these families, for us. Um, your kids sh- certainly are we're lucky to have you in those formative years too, because you're a professional that, uh, that, you know, where we got to have you by our side and we could kind of be guided a little bit, which would have been great with Sophia as well. Um, but they were pretty lucky to have you there. That's really fantastic. I, you know, and Stephen just kind of tapped on, and and I don't think we've even talked about it because it's about early intervention. But, you know, just a, a minute for the parents is that you, you also give the parents permission uh, to do what like you're, we were able to do with Sophia and, oh, they'll get it and all of those things that you, it just comes with the territory. But with the challenges of a child with Down syndrome, though, that permission isn't necessarily there because there's so much going on. There's so much as, as the parent to try to parent, as the parent of the unknown, trying to figure out how that goes, as uh, working with a disability and all of those things that... 
you know, just as a human to be given the permission to just be is it's very liberating. And I think without you ever saying it or being it, it was, it was your voice. It was your approach. It, it was the humility that came along with it where there wasn't anything perfect. It's like, Oh, where are we today? And all right, let's see, let's just, let's be here and see what happens. And man, I, you know, in hindsight, you, if we knew then, (laughs) but in hindsight, you look back and it was that peace that you brought that, that allowed us I think loud. It was our formative years. It was our early intervention as well. Well, thank you. I mean, I, I every family I work with, I learn from them as well, and I just tr- strive to get better and better. But thank you so much. Our pleasure. So I don't. Well, that was a that was a nice uh, conversation with Carolyn, and she she had such an impact in our life. And going back, Stephen, to if we knew then. So we're starting, if we if we knew then, I wouldn't have waited so long for some of the services. I would have been more of an advocate to uh, get some of the services started early, in, including the early intervention. I, there's so much information I wish I had, even in the pregnancy or when Liam was first born, to be able to start setting up those uh, services, contacting regional service and so he would have support from go I know that would be one thing that I would do Uh, I was I think I was afraid to ask for things or I couldn't believe that somebody was going to help me I didn't really know that it's actually your child's right so even with uh, Liam being premature and in the NICU we were introduced to regional center and kind of got some things rolling I don't think we asked enough and I think it's because Almost you feel like it's a, it, you're, you're given this gift and, and should you ask for more? It's hard to like be given something that you think is a gift and then say, hey, any, any more? Anything else I can get? But it's not a gift. It's, it's it, your child. It isn't, but that's how it right. kind of came across. So that right? would be, yeah. And I, you're right. I would ask for what I knew. I know that speech was a really hard thing to get and we're hoping to get a speech therapist on here. But speech has always been a challenge and it's, the, it's a service that's so needed because so important it's the expressive language like Liam's there he's got the receptive he's got the cognitive and a lot of times the judgment especially when it comes to the school system that falls heavy on Liam is his expressive and I have to work so hard to prove that nope it's just he's saying that you just don't understand what he's saying and so I think you know speech was a service that I would have fought harder for that. I would yeah, have definitely pushed. have fought harder and I would have pushed and I would have asked more questions and I would have advocated harder sooner. It's a great question to ask any professional in any therapy. What would you recommend I do? What other services do you think you could give us or that you know other families have? And a lot of times those therapists will be open enough to say, oh, well, you know, I do have experience with uh, this other service. Uh, it could be speech or it could be occupational therapy, physical therapy. So it's always a great question to ask a provider. What's your experience with other children that you think my child would benefit from, uh, services you think my child would benefit from? And a lot of times you're going to have a professional come to you and say, hey, this is, this, is, this is my insight because you really don't have much insight at that time. And if you don't have questions being answered on a podcast or an article that you found or some kind of video, how would you know? Yeah, I'd, I would also trust my gut more because I know Natalie, for both speech and for PT, I know Natalie had remembered we had gone through a few therapists before 
settling on her. And I always questioned myself when it didn't feel right in my gut, when I knew this is not a good fit. Or I remember one time we had a, a physical therapist who used the R word, which that just took that off the table. And uh, I, I doubted myself. So I would say if I, if I knew then what I know now, I would advocate, ask questions, uh, know what services I can get for my child, and then ask for them and stay on top of that because it makes the hugest difference. Well, when we, or when together, I guess, but I feel like you were more the front runner of it when we when we decided this, this physical therapist just isn't really working out 100% like we want it. And for you to bring to me the option of maybe we can ask for another physical therapist, even the thought of it would stress me. So when we did it, I still, even after I went, oh, did I hurt anybody's feelings? Did was this the right thing to do? Is this is this how things happen? Are we are we a problem? Are we you know? And you know, in hindsight, though, it was things that were unacceptable. Oh, it was someone coming into it was our no home, brainer. and you could tell just the therapy just what if it doesn't feel right. And you know what's great is now ten years later, there is YouTube. <laughs> There's so many. Uh, technologies around and even just speech the the amount of technologies and apps that are out there so even if you're fighting to get these services uh, go go out there and start looking them up because there there's a lot of supports there that are virtual and hopefully that also makes them more cost effective and so we can start to support our kids uh, in bigger and better ways even if we're having to fight to get the support in other manners, we can actually do it in our home. And I think that that's what's so great about technology is that it does, it's, it's just opening so many doors and I absolutely love it. And I'm, I'm in love with assistive technology. And this podcast is a bit of technology too. It was, it's, it's going back to old school radio, but it's a way for us when we we're parents that have a lot of stuff going on in the day. We've seems like parents today are trying to multitask like, like never before possibly also due to technology. But to be able to put some headphones on and you can get some stuff done and still listen to information, it's just a way to inform yourself, which gives you power, which can then settle you and, and maybe relieve some stress. Please follow us on Twitter at If We Knew Then Pod, and you can drop us a line on our Facebook page at If We Knew Then Pod, or visit our website, ifweknewthen.com, to send us an email with questions and comments. And you can join our mailing list there and get alerts of future podcast episodes. All these links will be added to this episode's show notes. Thank you again, and we look forward to you joining us on the next episode of If We Knew Then. Amazon.